The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5 this morning, we are continuing our study verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We've made our way to what I would say is a precious portion of Scripture. Not that all Scripture is not precious, it is in some regard, uh, but not all Scripture is equally profitable. It's all equally inspired, it is all profitable, but there are some portions of God's Word uh, that just speak more powerfully, more directly, more applicationally to our lives today. And I know I have found personally for myself, as we have looked through what we entitled the Sermon on the Mount, this teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, Uh, I have found it extremely profitable for my life. I hope it's been a blessing to you as well. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, as you navigate your way there, uh, I want to read a portion of of a a scripture to you all the way back from the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, Just to give you the context a little bit of this word from God, Uh, Samuel is the prophet of God. King uh, Saul is the king over Israel at the time. King Saul has not been the godly king that he should have been, that he could have been. He has just disobeyed God in a a great way. Samuel has had to confront him over that. Samuel is in a place of discouragement. He's disappointed and frustrated at Saul. And and he's even discouraged at the direction of the nation of Israel. And and God tells him, you know, get up from your your discouragement and, and go to Bethlehem. Go to the house of Jesse, for there I have one who will be the next king. Go and anoint him. And so Samuel takes off. He obeys. He goes to the house of Jesse. And as he arrives there, he is going to lead them in a a sacrifice. And he sees the oldest son of Jesse. And he thinks, surely this is the Lord's anointed. He was the oldest of his household. He, He had the appearance of a great man. Had the appearance of one who would make a great king. And he asks God, is this the one that I must anoint? And in chapter 16, verse 7 of 1 Samuel, we read, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. And he says, For the Lord does not see as man sees. The Lord doesn't see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That we look at the outward appearance, and we make judgments based upon the external, upon the outside appearance. But the Lord, God, is not deceived by external appearances. God is the one who sees the actual heart. He sees the innermost part of who we are. And all seven sons came before Samuel and God said, no, 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 even as Samuel thought, surely this next one is going to be the one. And eventually Samuel has to ask ask Jesse, have you got any more children? And Jesse's even shocked. David, but he's the youngest and he's he's keeping sheep right now. and, And surely he cannot be the next king. He cannot be the Lord's anointed. And sure enough, when David appeared, God said to Samuel, anoint him for he is the one. Man looks on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. Last week, we concluded with verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. 
want to read it again for us this morning. You should be there in your, your scriptures. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This statement by the Lord Jesus to his disciples and a few hundred more who had gathered to hear the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, this statement undoubtedly shocked all who were in hearing distance. Maybe even the Pharisees themselves, some who had gathered there hearing this. Every person that heard Jesus say, your righteousness has to surpass, it's got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes of Pharisees, or you'll by no means enter the kingdom of God. They, they, they stepped back in shock and saying, say what? We, what how, how do you figure that? How is that even possible? You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were highly esteemed as the most devout and knowledgeable of God's Word in that day and age. It would be as if we were Catholic this morning. We're not, but it would be as if we were. And we were to say, unless your righteousness exceeds the priests and the monks, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And every Catholic would go, are you what? Are you serious? How in the world can I be more righteous than a priest or more righteous than a monk? How in the world can I be more righteous than the scribes and the, the Pharisees? This left the crowd in, in a bit of confusion. At how in the world can anybody make it into the kingdom of heaven? See, the Pharisees had developed a very strict way of life that by all appearance in the ex external, on the outside, exhibited like devout, extreme righteousness according to the law and their interpretation of the law. They had developed, you know, under the Old Testament law, there's over 600 commands of things that ought to be done and not ought to be done. Based upon those 600 plus, the, the Pharisees had de devised this elaborate set of rules and precepts that were to be followed, thousands of rules that were to be followed. For example, on the, the Sabbath, they had 39 rules with multiple sub-levels of rules under those 39. There were more than the 39 precepts and rules they built on the Sabbath. They had sub-rules, so under one of those, they might have six um, applications of it. They had this elaborate scheme of rules that they followed that externally revealed to everybody their righteousness. Some silly stuff, even. For example, you couldn't spit on a rock on the Sabbath, or couldn't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. You had to spit on a rock. If you spit and it landed on the ground, it could be considered watering the ground, tilling the ground, and that would be work, that would be labor, that would be breaking the Sabbath. That was an actual rule that they abided by. You couldn't swat a fly, because that would be considered hunting if it were the Sabbath. Now, I've got a little salt gun at the house, and I can... I can understand if you had a salt gun hunting your fly, but, but just to swat a fly, they deemed was against the law. A woman couldn't look at a reflection because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out, and that would be considered doing work on the Sabbath. You couldn't carry your clothes out of your house if your house was burning down, because that would be considered labor and work, and so you, you would have to let it burn, or get this, you actually could put the garments on as if you were dressing yourself and even put multiple layers on and exit your house, but you couldn't carry them out. You had to be wearing them. Extremely, even silly, in the legalistic interpretation of the external application of the Old Testament law. They, they devised a means of obeying what they interpreted the law to be whereby, in the eyes of man, 
in the eyes of what everybody was looking at and seeing in their lives, they were extremely righteous. Jesus steps in here on this Sermon on the Mount. And what he has to say completely obliterates their ideology of righteousness according to the law. Jesus reminded them that it takes more than external appearances to please the Lord. That that God is a God who not only sees the external, but He sees the heart motivation even behind the external. And that He's a God who judges accordingly, not only to actions we take, but even to the very deeds and desires and thoughts of our own heart. As we will observe, about as we will see, about to see even this morning and the weeks that lie ahead. Notice in verse 21, I'll go ahead and read it for you. Jesus begins by saying, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, and then you look down to verse 27, You have heard it said to those of old, and then he quotes a command, then, then, then verse 28, But I say to you, what Jesus is doing, six times he'll do it in the the, the scriptures that lie ahead of us, we'll look to them all in the weeks that lie ahead. Six times Jesus takes an interpretation of a command that the, the Pharisees had merely externalized. And Jesus points us to what the law really, really reveals to us, which is actually a conviction of our heart. The, the heart that is behind the sin. He says, you've heard it said this, and that's right. But I say to you, it speaks to even more than just that extreme external action of sin. It speaks even to the heart of sin that lies within us all. Jesus, in these verses we will look to this morning and the weeks that lie ahead, takes that which which the Pharisees had so externalized and so, honestly, they made it something that within our own ability they, they could follow. They could they could not spit on the ground on the Sabbath. They could not commit murder or adultery in their own strength and their own power. They, they took the law and they so externalized it into the action only that they produced a, a, an appearance of righteousness by the power of man, by their own ability, by their own doing. And Jesus, in the words that He gives here, and the right interpretation of the law he brings their attention and our attention back to, he cuts right to the heart. Literally cuts to the heart to reveal none of us, Pharisees, none of us, Baptists, none of us, whatever title you're clinging to, measure up to the righteousness that God requires. That ultimately all fall short of the glory of God. That ultimately all are sinners, all we have turned astray, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Let's go ahead and read this morning, verses 21 through 26. You have heard it said, I've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way first. 
be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Pharisees rightly taught that murder was sin. One of the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not murder. Now, our King James Version says, Thou shalt not kill, and that has created some confusion in some Christian circles because um, some gather simply by that command that all killing is murder, and that is not true. Not all killing is murder, but all murder is killing. Uh, There is Uh, a justifiable reasoning for some lives to be ended, such as capital punishment, the taking of a life because one has taken a life, even given by God, the command of God, under the law and even preceding the law through Noah even, that, that, that one who takes another's life and commits murder by punishment, because of punishment of that action, should have their life taken. That is not murder when a government entity in this day and age delivers a sentence of capital punishment. It is not murder when one is um, acting in self-defense, when one is seeking to take a life and one acts to prevent the taking of a life. That is killing. You you may end up in a killing, a taking of a life, but it's justifiable. It it is justifiable when a killing occurs within war. It's a just war argument there that if one's fighting for a just cause um, uh, for their nation, that that, that would not be murder. That would be the taking of a life. It would be a killing, but it would not be murder. Murder is when one is acting and takes a life unjustifiably. Unjustifiably. The taking of a life. The law condemned murder. Cain and Abel, going back to the very beginning, murder has, from the very beginning, been viewed as sin, been viewed as wrong, been viewed as as being an action that brings about the judgment not only on earth, but the judgment of God. And so rightly so, Jesus says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. That's as far as the Pharisees like to take the application of that command, because that's a severe action, is it not, to murder someone? I doubt there's anyone in here, to my knowledge there is not, uh, someone who has murdered another person. Maybe, maybe you've served your sentence and you're out, but I doubt, I doubt that's the case. Uh, nobody, to my knowledge, has murdered anyone. Uh, none of the Pharisees struggled, honestly, with that, most likely, that, that they would say, man, I really just want to murder somebody and i got to you know, really guard my life so I don't murder them. Maybe a husband and a wife here or there, but no. Um, Pharisees did not struggle with murder. They viewed murder as sin, and they deemed murder as falling under a great consequence of God. In goodness did they love speaking against the sin of murder. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And I can speak uh, uh, in, in right, rightly speak about it as something wrong, and it's something that I've never done. Therefore, I'm not a murderer. Aren't I something? Jesus takes what they took only externally. Applying it externally makes it something that we can actually do in our own effort. And Jesus reveals the innermost, really the heart motivation behind that action. And by doing so, really reveals in a way we're all guilty of murder in the eyes of God. He continues, he says, but I say to you, 
that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He says, you want to know the right interpretation of this law, it's not merely don't do the action, but as we think about that action, we ought to consider also the heart motivation that that action is revealing and realize it's not only the action that is sinful, it is the heart motivation that that produces that action that is sinful in the eyes of God. Not only should you not murder, but if you have a hatred in your heart, the anger that produces murder, if you have that anger within your heart, and then some translations add without cause, meaning not a righteous indignation against sin, but, but a true anger against a person, against a brother, a sister, and the Lord especially. If you have this anger against a person, you're in danger of the judgment. It, it is sinful in the eyes of God to harbor such anger against another person. And he continues, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Raka is a word that's really an insult of intelligence against intelligence. I think a modern day equivalent would be calling somebody stupid or an idiot. You're insulting intelligence and saying you're, you're not intelligent. It is a lighter term. It's not a, 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 a severe, severe term, but it's still a great insult. He says, whoever calls his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool. A fool is a stronger word, dealing not only with an uh, insult of intelligence, but even the character of an individual, the character and integrity of a person. You fool, that person shall be in danger of hellfire. Not merely earthly judgment, but even God Himself displeased with the heart of a person harboring such anger, such hatred toward another person. Realize in the eyes of God, Anger is just as much sin as murder. Anger is just as much sin as is murder. Now, Jesus is not saying, nor am I saying, that murder and anger are the very same thing. There are degrees of the wickedness of sin. The Westminster um, Catechism words it the, the heinous. Uh, of sin, how heinous an act is. Some acts of sin carry greater consequence, carry greater even earthly judgment, and rightly so. For a person to murder another person, the taking of a life unjustly, that is a severe action that terminates the life of that individual. That affects family and friends in the future of what would have been. That is a severe action. That, that is a far greater action than me or you harboring anger towards another person that we don't act upon. Okay, so, so they're, they're, Jesus is not saying that these are equivalent, but he's saying they're both of the same sort, the same type, the same essence, the same variety of what it is. They're both transgressions. They're, they're both wickedness in the eyes of God. They're both sin in the eyes of God so that when God looks down and He sees the murderer and He also looks down and sees the one harboring anger and and hatred, both are sinners in His eyes. Both are in need of forgiveness in the eyes of a holy God. And understand this, eternally, both are deserving of hellfire, which is what Jesus is speaking to here. Even the littlest offense against a holy God is worthy of eternal damnation because He's an eternally holy God. And so even a little sin in the eyes of a holy God eternally is not merely a little sin. 
It's an eternal offense against the holy God of all creation, of all the universe. And so Jesus is not saying here that the act of murder is identical to the act of of anger, but he is saying in the eyes of God, you are condemned a sinner just as much so for your anger as you are if you actually act upon the anger and murder someone and take their life. In the eyes of God, anger is just as much sin as is murder. Pharisees loved speaking against the big sins that they never committed while ignoring the little ones that they did. Doesn't that sound just like us? We love speaking about the big sins that we don't do all the while ignoring the the little sins that we do. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel righteous and justified in the eyes of God. But hear me, it is a lie. It is deception. Our little sins are just as much a grief to a holy God as are the big sins of this life. And Jesus says the law, even as it speaks to the big actions of sin, it it, it ought to be interpreted in a way where we see how that applies to each and every one of our lives, to each and every one of our hearts, even This morning, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of judgment. There's a biblical counseling saying that I heard over and over again at Southern that is so true and meant for counseling situations, but really for life in general as we look to the Bible and its teaching. And it goes like this, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That no matter if it's marital conflict, if it's a struggle with depression, if it's um, relationship issues within a family between parents and children, whatever the situation is, you can always trace it to the heart, to the heart desires, to the heart issues, the things going on internally. And the external is merely a manifestation of the internal. And Jesus is saying, even of the law and the command, thou shalt not murder, murder, that's really just an external revelation, manifestation, something we can sort of hang a hat on and see of something that we can't see, which is the anger that's within a person's heart. And as we think of the law of God, and as we think of God, realize God is not just a God who sees the external action. God is a God who sees the heart. Therefore, the sin of anger fall under judgment just as will the sin of murder. Why is anger such a big deal in the eyes of Jesus? He gives us two illustrations, uh, two instructions even regarding anger. Notice first, verses 23 and verse 24, it hinders your worship of God. It hinders your worship of God. That you, You can't rightly serve the Lord and be rightly loving the Lord if you're not rightly loving your brother. That you can't harbor hatred in your heart and anger in your heart and bitterness in your heart over something against another person and and think that God is going to be pleased with your worship, that God is going to be pleased with your offering. Verse 23, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, now in that day and age, that would be a sacrifice. And most likely, Jesus has in mind here even the temple, 
where they're coming to the temple after a great journey, many of them traveling a great distance to get there. And you can only imagine, especially those once-a-year offerings, the, the line of people to get into the temple. Think of this for a moment. I get frustrated waiting in a short line. Imagine if, if on a Sunday we only came to this place once a year and there was hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people that had gathered to come in and make an offering. You're waiting in line. This was something that was very time-consuming. He says, even as you're waiting there and you get there to lay your offering down at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, what does he say? Give the offering and then go deal with it? No, he says, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. You can come back to that. He's not saying that your reconciliation is more important than worship, but he is saying you can't worship rightly until you're reconciled as you ought to be. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. That God sees the heart. It doesn't matter if you have an external appearance of worship and you're, you're dressed the right way and you're singing with a loud voice and you're, you're, you're looking by the appearance of man as if everything's put together and you're serving the Lord and you're following Him in all of His ways this morning. You realize God sees the heart. sees beyond what I see and what you see as you look around. Everybody in this room looks pretty good. Everybody in this room looks like you got it pretty well put together. But I know behind the scenes, reality is none of us got it put together as it looks in our life. God sees the heart. God sees far more than the external appearances that we put on. There's a danger turning our righteousness into external appearances that we can start to believe we've got it all put together. That we can start to believe our righteousness will justify us someday before the Lord. Jesus says it hinders your worship of God. And notice in the second instruction, the second illustration, realize that anger will cost you far more than you realize. Anger will cost you far more than you realize. Agree with your adversary quickly. And so this is one who's even has ought against you, has something against you, an adversary. Agree with them quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. And Jesus just speaks a common sense application here saying it's better to not let anger so consume you that you act irrationally and unreasonably. That it's better if somebody has an argument against you to go to that person and in calmness and in grace and in kindness work that out rather than taking it to the courts in an angry temper tantrum and, and arguing it there where another will determine the case. Because the likelihood is, especially obviously if you are in the wrong, that, that you will pay up more than you would pay if you in a cool-headed nature would have just sought to resolve it. Even when you win a court case in this day and age, often you pay so much in lawyer fees and, and, and just in the anxiety and stress of walking through what you must walk through in a court case, that ultimately it's a loss. Anger blinds us, does it not? Anger deceives us. Anger causes us to act, to act stupidly. It does. Anger causes us to act in ways we, 
would not act in. And foolishness, because we're so hot-tempered, because we're so in the moment, controlled and blinded and deceived by anger. Confession of a pastor who is a golfer. I think it was the last time I played, actually. So this wasn't a long, long time ago. In Palatka, hit a beautiful drive first shot. One of those that just hit the ball as crisp as you can hit it. Way, way, way down the fairway, dead center of the fairway. Thought, my goodness, I'm going to beat my older brother in golf today. Playing with brothers, there's an extra level of competition there. Second shot, I, I hit the ball fairly well. It flew right over the green. Looked like it might have hit the back side of the green. But I get up there and come to find out it hit the back side of the green, kept rolling, went down into a bunker. Sand bunker. For those of you who don't play golf, sand bunkers are not good. And in that moment, I don't know what overcame me, but I grabbed my sand wedge to hit it out of the bunker, and instead of taking a nice easy swing to hit it the 10 yards up onto the green that it needed to go, I, I swung about as hard as I could and stole the ball, and it went about 150, 180 yards past the green, all the way back down the fairway into the rough behind the tree. I, I, I tell you that silly story, not just to confess my sins before you, because we ought to confess our faults to one another. Um, I tell you that story because that illustrates so well what we do in anger. Okay, and that, that, that cost me a few strokes in a golf round that really doesn't matter at all. But you realize when we let anger creep into our hearts and anger is our motivation and that we're acting upon it, we do that in life. And instead of doing what wisdom would call for us to do and in, in, in what is actually best for us in the long run, people act in anger. And it's like hitting the ball 180 yards backwards on a par 4 and getting it stuck behind a tree in the rough. It causes more damage in the long run. Anger will cost you more. You think that it will satisfy. You think that it will afflict the other person that you're angry at. But in the end, what happens is it actually causes you just as much, if not more so, more damage than you afflict upon the other person. Think of a police ticket that you see so often in these videos where it's a simple ticket. Or a simple even warning at times. But what happens? Anger gets the best of a person. and Anger flows out of a person's mouth. And, and anger even causes a person to exit a vehicle and to begin uh, uh, an, an assault. Uh, uh, what was just a simple ticket and can even end the, the taking of a life. How does something elevate so, so quickly? Anger gets the best of a person. There, there's a danger, Jesus says, to anger. Agree with your adversaries quickly while you're on the way. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, you get thrown in prison, and you end up paying the last penny until you get out. And this doesn't even speak to what's implied in the whole passage, the judgment of God that comes upon you, even that judgment of hellfire, for the anger that you're harboring within your heart. Jesus says there's an urgency to this thing. There's an urgency to getting right with others. Because you're not going to be right with God unless you're right with others. Because it will cost you so greatly in the long run, this anger that is being harbored within your heart. It's not merely about the external act of murder. It's about even the anger that you're harboring in your heart this morning. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right now, this morning, God sees your heart. That ought to discourage you a little bit. You realize God 
God not only sees the sinful actions that you take, but He sees the sinful motivations, the sinful desires, the sinful thoughts and words that aren't even spoken. God sees that and will bring judgment upon you because of that. If you're really rightly examining your heart, that ought to lead you to a place of hopelessness. It's really what this message is about so far. It's really what the sermon Jesus gave was all about. It wasn't about, well, if you just get a little less angry, someday you might actually make it into heaven. You might actually attain a righteousness that exceeds and surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. No, Jesus is is leading us in what He's teaching to come to the realization that the law convicts us not merely on our actions, but, but internally on our heart level. The law convicts us of of the sinners that we are, not just the sins that we commit, that there is not righteousness, there's unrighteousness within us. And that no matter what we do, no matter how righteous we become in the appearance of things, that righteousness is not a saving righteousness. Sin still must be condemned by a holy God. We need a righteousness that is perfect according to the law. We need a righteousness that fulfills all the requirements of the law. And it's Jesus who said in verse 17 that we looked at last week, I have not come to abolish the law, but come to fulfill it. That Jesus is the sinless Son of God. That Jesus is the one who gives His life a ransom on Calvary to pay for our sins. But hear me, He was buried and He's resurrected now. He's alive in order that He may give to us not only eternal life, but what enables us to have eternal life, He gives to us His righteousness. We need a righteousness that's not of us because our righteousnesses are tainted by sin. If you're here this morning thinking that being here at church is adding one more little weight on the side of the scale of your good works that you hope someday will will be more than your bad works and God's going to let you in the kingdom of heaven, you don't know anything of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says your righteousness isn't enough. That's why He gave His life on Calvary. And that's why He came to live a perfect life in our place. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 that the goal of his life was to be found in Jesus, not having, he says, my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And so this morning as we come to an invitation, I want to ask you, how's your heart before God? I'm not asking how's the external appearance of things. We, we all can give an appearance we got to put together. I'm asking, how is your heart before a God who sees it all? Who sees what I don't see as I look out and, and see you. I don't know the sins of your heart that you've committed this week, but God does. God sees it. And you will be judged according to it. Unless you come to the one who was judged for you. Unless you come to the one who gives to you His robes of righteousness to clothe you in, to shield you from the judgment that you deserve. You need the forgiveness, the redemption, the covering that only comes from Christ. If you've never turned to Him, never repented and believed upon Him, I beg you as we come to this invitation, turn and find His grace, find His mercy, find His salvation this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord, and we thank You for Your Word that teaches and instructs us, that reveals to us uh, what we know in life, that we aren't what we ought to be. 
we, even though we by Your grace can do good and no righteousness, we are sinners. Lord, our hearts are messed up. And the law reveals that to us. Lord, I, I thank You that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That You had given us a means, a way of being saved, of being forgiven, of being redeemed. And so many people think they can do it on their own, and they can't. Lord, Christ did it all. We need Him. We need His righteousness. Thank You for His righteousness and salvation that many of us in this room know and we've experienced. Lord, help us to shield our hearts from anger to rid even our hearts of anger, to confess that this morning, to go to any that we may need to go to and confess that sin and apologize for it, to restore relationships. Lord, work, I pray, sanctify your body. Lord, for any that's never come to Christ, but unsaved, Lord, 